A History of Live Sound with Chris Snow. I've been a sound engineer for 18 years, and in that time I've mixed rock bands, pop bands, dance music and orchestras. In my working life, the industry has become a hotbed of innovation and cutting-edge technology, but I've often wondered what came before this. This podcast speaks to some of the people who were present at significant moments in sound. Today I'm speaking to Phil Dudderidge. Phil was a teenager in the 60s. He got into music and he got into live sound. He was Led Zeppelin's first sound engineer, started a company you may have heard of called Soundcraft, and rescued and built up another company called Focusrite. Let's hear how it happened. If we could go back to how it all started and the way you found yourself in this situation, it probably starts when you got your first job. So, yeah, if you can tell us about about your first job. Yes, my first job um, was with a company called Caps Research in uh, Kingsbury, North London. And Caps Research was a company that developed industrial microfilm equipment uh, for industrial purposes. And um, that wasn't of any interest to me whatsoever. What was of interest to me was getting a wage at the end of the week. I got the job as an assistant to the assistant to to the production manager, which made me basically a gopher. And uh, I was... 16 years old, had a scooter, Lambretta scooter, which I would uh, drive to work on. And um, the most interesting one being going to the airport to either export uh, spare parts or pick up things that have been flown in from somewhere abroad. So um, during the 18 months that I was at, at CAPS, I learned about the fundamentals of shipping stuff by air. Uh, which stood me in good stead years later. But by the summer of 67, the summer of love, um, I kind of got bored with working on an industrial estate in North London and, and gravitated to uh, the centre of London to find out what was what was happening on the scene. I, I had a feeling from the mention of a, a Lambretta that there might have been a, a little bit of interest in music and what was going on in like the mod scene and that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I, I suppose as a you know schoolboy listening to Radio Caroline and Radio London, I was you know, like a lot of my generation listening to all the new stuff that's coming on the radio, and uh, it was exciting stuff. It went along with everything else that goes on when you're 16, which is um, you know chasing girls and just finding out who you are as a as a person. I wasn't academic and hadn't been sort of lined up for a career in any particular direction. And I was left by my family to pretty much figure things out for myself. So um, that's what I did. So you you found yourself heading towards central London to the bright lights. Yeah, I'm afraid I I confess that I was uh, misled by my older (laughs) sister, who's 10 years older than me, and she came back from... Uh, where she was living in Cornwall for a visit uh, with her boyfriend and, and got me high for the first time. <laughs> and uh, and that kind of changed my attitude to life. It's quite remarkable. And if, uh, if anyone tells you that drugs don't change your perception, well, they're wrong. Um, 
<laughs> the following day, I just went to work and everything looked a bit stupid. And I was a bit giggly still and uh, I couldn't really take it in. So that's why I quit the job and a safe wage of £15 a week and, uh, and headed south for the city, the big city, and find out what was going on. And did you have a plan for when you got to the city, or were you a free agent? No, absolutely not. I mean, I was very self-sufficient. I was li- already living away from home in a in a bedsit, and so my you know my first priority was to get a job of some sort, make a living, so I could pay the rent and f- feed myself. And uh, I got a job with International Times, which was the underground newspaper of the day the equivalent of the Village Voice in New York. And that put me in contact with Joe Boyd, who was producing psychedelic posters, um, which were distributed along with the uh, International Times newspaper. And my job was to, using my car, uh, driving round London, delivering both posters and papers to um, various outlets. That lasted through the summer of 67. Um, By September, I happened to be in the home office of of Joe Boyd, overhearing him cancelling a Fairport convention gig. As as he was... That was was because the van had broken down. And uh, so when he got (laughs) off the phone from Leeds University, I said to him, you need a van? And he said, yeah, can you get one? I said, yeah, I'll get one. Uh, for, For Saturday, this was, and on a Tuesday. So... Once he was assured that I could get a van, uh, he reinstated the gig, and I had about three or four days to go and buy a van and show up in Muswell Hill on the on the Saturday morning to take them to Leeds, and I'd never been north of Watford before, so uh, that was an adventure. So your qualification was a van and a road map? <laughs> yeah. I don't think I had a map, actually. I think I just sort of followed my nose. But um, I, knew, I knew it was up the M1 and the rest would take care of itself. So uh, that's literally how I started in the world of music. I worked for Fairport Convention with my van for uh, the rest of the year. And after Christmas, sadly, I was informed that... Uh, They'd bought themselves a brand new transit and they'd found themselves a grown-up uh, to drive it, um, who was probably, I don't know, 25 or something. And uh, whereas I was the same age as the band, uh, I think probably Joe Boyd wanted somebody a bit more adult to look after the band. But anyway, it meant that uh, I had to find other talent to drive around. <laughs> and through that, did a lot of work when you were on the road in those days what were your were your duties were you literally you just got people to the gig or yeah it was it, well it was um yeah literally going around the houses picking up uh members of the band and their bits of equipment at each home and then having arrived at the gig you know taking the the equipment and the band all together in the one comma 1500 weight van which was not a big van but it was just big enough at the time because people didn't carry much in the way of equipment you know there there weren't any big PA systems or anything so you know I'd get to the gig and help them get the gear on stage and set it up it was uh, not complicated but it it was a (laughs) self-contained setup though in that they 
they would bring their column speakers to a show so they could turn up anywhere and play. Yeah, but the PA system was probably two columns uh, and, a, and an amplifier. Um, there's no mixers or anything like that. I mean, it was only really for the vocalist to be heard um, over the drums and guitars. I don't recall miking anything up at, at that stage. So after your... Uh... So then I, after Fairport, I started working uh, with the Incredible String Band, which came out of the uh, Joe Boyd stable. And on their larger gigs, they did have a rudimentary PA system provided by Midland Sound Services. Um, I, the name has just come to mind. I can't remember <laughs> the guy's name, but uh, it was more of, more like a big hi-fi system, but I don't remember what the speakers were, nothing that was sort of standard mm-hmm. in the industry. But, yeah, we did the Albert Hall with that, <laughs> and uh, that was interesting. In fact... My duties included at the Albert Hall dressing up as a woman and dancing on stage. You wouldn't believe it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they asked me to do it. I said, yeah, why not? You know, so they put me in a dress and made me up and put a wig on. I looked horribly like my sister. Uh, but... <laughs> I mean, the, the Albert Hall's notoriously... Um, they've spent a lot of money recently refurbing the sound system at the Albert Hall. And I'm just imagining you with the incredible string bands turning up with a glorified home hi-fi and trying to fill the room well it was quite an acoustic band to start with you know with acoustic guitars and sitars and tablas and things like that and, a, and vocals so it was um in a hall like the albert hall you know that's designed for acoustic music first of all you don't have to be loud to start with for, to, to reach the gods. It's quite surprising, and I think people's ears worked better in those days. So, uh, yeah, it was loud enough. It certainly wasn't rock and roll, but uh, people could hear the, the performance, and, and as I say, it, it was adequate. I wouldn't say it was perfect by any means, but it was adequate, and people's people's expectations were not the same as they would be today. They don't expect it to be loud and effortless to hear. You know, people probably enjoyed straining their ears. So it was maybe more like a classical concert where people would hush when the music started and then applaud at the end. Absolutely, yeah. I think that's usually the case at the Albert Hall anyway, even these days. <laughs> So, uh, so, so following that time with uh, incredible string bands, then I believe Soft Machine then uh, dawned on the horizon. Uh, yeah, before Soft Machine, um, uh, there's a band, Pete Brown and the Battered Ornaments. Pete Brown was the lyric writer with um, Jack Bruce of Cream. So most of the Cream songs uh, that are known uh, had his lyrics, and so he had extremely good uh, income stream from publishing but he always fancied himself as a performer so he had his own band uh, with you know, various musicians who went on to greater things Huey Flint on drums John McLaughlin on guitar uh, come to mind particularly wow. um, and um, I still had that rotten old comma van at the time and uh, I, sp- I don't know how long I was, probably six months or so. Uh, and sometimes there was overlaps between different bands when people weren't touring constantly. So I would have to find alternative 
employment that's you know if if one band stopped another one would become available somehow so there's plenty of work it's, it's very much the same today uh-huh. <laughs> yeah there, was, there, uh, there were very few quiet periods where i didn't have anything going on uh yeah then soft machine and soft machine that was sort of fairly full-on for about a year there were some recording sessions in the, where i'd take the equipment into the studio i think that was the first time i went into abbey road actually it was with soft machine no, that's not true. I went into Olympic and Sound Techniques with Federal yeah. Convention. Uh, so, yeah, I started getting exposure to other aspects of the industry, but studios never really... I mean, it's ironic, given what I do today, that <laughs> I, I never sort of had the urge to spend my life in a recording studio, uh, thus never became a recording engineer. I thought it was far too repetitive it's too slow a process i, I loved lysand uh, when i mm. got into it finally and that was you know my first real experience of live sound as opposed to sticking a couple of columns up was with led zeppelin it, it echoes with me slightly because i think i wanted to work in a studio until i experienced doing live sound and i was like oh this is much better but yes it, it was a learning process yeah, well, I think in both cases you you become part of the the performance. You you make your contribution to what the audience ends up hearing. So uh, I think both are satisfying. I suppose if I'd started as a T-boy in a recording studio, I probably would have ended up as a recording engineer. But mm. um, you know that was that'll have to be for another life. <laughs> <laughs> So did you then start at the implosion nights, or was it High Watt first? Well, there was Led Zeppelin uh, first ah, in 19... 19- the, the elephant in the room. <laughs> uh, in in uh, 1970, I was at the WEM factory. WEM was the manufacturer of choice for PA systems in England at the time. So I was at the WEM factory getting some something fixed, which was... You know, quite a regular occurrence. And I was talking to Charlie Watkins, who was the owner, and just happened to say to him, do you know of any other bands, you know, looking for somebody, because I'm a bit bored with Soft Machine. And uh, he said, yeah, Led Zeppelin are looking for somebody. I'll give them a call. So he called the management office, and the next thing I knew, I was being interviewed and basically said, yeah, I can do that, um, and to whatever the question was, um, and got the job of looking after being, essentially it was being a roadie looking after the PA. Things hadn't really reached the the point where people were being described as sound engineers. They were in the studio. Uh, if you're on the road, you're a roadie, and that was it. Unless you're the tour manager, which was another thing altogether. <laughs> a non-specific roadie. Well, the tour manager looked after the band and, and the money. So uh, tour manager for Led Zeppelin was a guy called Richard Cole, who, uh, or Cole's plural, I think. And uh, he, he was, uh, was... Books have been written about him or by him. Uh, a character... I better not say any more. I'll get sued for slander. <laughs> so you've uh, you've been approved on this on this job by the management. So you uh, fly out to Montreux, yeah, to meet the band. 
With your suitcase in hand. Yep, train from the airport. Geneva Airport to Montreux. Went and found the band at the casino where they were supposed to be rehearsing. They weren't, but they were having a cup of tea when I arrived. And so I made a, an impact on Robert Plant by producing my own Earl Grey tea bags. Um, so he thought that... <laughs> Uh, in retrospect, I think that was very pretentious of me, but uh, anyone who's <laughs> toured in Europe knows you can't get a decent cup of tea there unless you take your own tea bags. You were worldly wise. I was worldly wise, yeah. Uh, so um, we did a couple of shows at, at the casino in Montreux and uh, two nights running, and then started uh, the tour that took us around various... Uh, places in Europe, um, Munich, Hamburg, Frankfurt, Amsterdam. I'm not looking at a list, I'm just going from memory. Um, and then after after doing, I don't know, maybe half a dozen gigs in Europe, it was the sort of second half or tail end of a, a European tour. Uh, there was about a week's break and then we were off to the States, which was exciting. I hadn't been there before. I looked at the uh, the tour dates, and it was noticeable that most of the shows in Europe were sort of maybe two thousand capacity concert halls. Exactly. Yeah. And then you you go over to the states for I did write it down twenty six shows in thirty days, which <laughs> sounds insane. Um, it was, and especially as they're not all next to each other. It was insane. Um, yeah, we, we flew to Vancouver, and that was the first show. And the following day after flying was the first show. And uh, I discovered that there was a PA system there, which nobody had told me to expect. So we'd taken the WEM <laughs> system with us, uh, all 1,200 watts of it. And there was a, a PA system from a company called the Kelly Deong Sound System, which is... Um, famous in in uh, the Vancouver area it was run by a guy called Dave Zeffert um, who died just a few years ago unfortunately but I only can remember his name because I came across it reading something on Wikipedia or something I, I keep trying to you know recap on all the different sound companies that we used around the states because it was at first never you know, never the same system twice. And then in some regions, we would get the same system two or three nights running. So um, over that month, um, I got to experience lots of different approaches to doing arena sound. And um, I think that's the point you were making earlier, that uh, when we went to the States, we weren't playing 2,000 seats. We were playing anything from 15,000 to 25,000, depending on the arena size the biggest being the Forum in Los Angeles. That was an interesting one because uh, it was the only gig on the tour that had a flying system, not seen a flying system before, and uh, it, it sounded extremely good. And I was asking the sound company all about it, and they were going on about the uh, designer who's called John Mayer. John Mayer is ah. famous today for... Uh, yeah, yes. sound systems but um, at that time he was working for the sound company that we were using 
I can't remember what it was called. Uh, it's still around as a company based in San Francisco. But uh, all the other systems we used around the country were either stage-mounted or, in one case, uh, with Clare Brothers. They had base bins that literally stood on the floor and were about 12, foot t- 12 feet tall. Massive base bins from, you know, designed for cinemas and uh, with multi-cell horns on top. They were pretty impressive, particularly on the bottom end. But overall, the system was, you know, was certainly compared to anything that I'd experienced in Europe. That system and some of the others were quite good. There were also some not so good ones. And and were you were you mixing from side of stage or were you out front? And was this on an audio master or? Yeah, well, as I mentioned, we'd taken the WEM system with us, and most of the sound companies didn't have anything that looked like a mixer. They had stacks of preamps uh, in most cases of different brands um altec sure various other sort of four into one uh, so the the web audio masters that we had with us uh, were far better and easier to use and uh, just a proper job so all 10 channels yeah we had two five channel web audio masters slaved together uh, to give me 10 channels to work with, which was not quite enough, really. I could have done with a third one. <laughs> uh, 15 channels would have been more than adequate. Uh, so five of them were on the drums, and the other five were for vocals and whatever else. So uh, I had three vocal mics across the stage, um, only one of which was really used. The other two were more for Jimmy Page to... You know, mumble something between songs and if you wanted to uh, and likewise for John Paul Jones but the, you know, basically with all channels you know fully open the the vocal mics were picking up the guitar from the uh, guitar stacks there were high, high, Ambient mic high watt amps on uh, Marshall cabinets um, you know, Marshall stacks so um and in the case of the bass, they were acoustic. 351, I think they're the bass amps and speakers. John Paul Jones had two of those. Um, so I didn't have to mic them up because the vocal mic was picking up enough. Uh, yeah, so I used a couple on the Leslie, um, which was, you know, the Hammond was used on a number of the songs, but not all of them. So John Paul Jones had switched between playing bass, guitar, and uh, playing Hammond and using the pedals from the Hammond for, for bass lines, as well as he also had a, another sort of set of pedals sat on top of the Hammond that he was using. So, yeah, he, he, he managed playing bass and playing keys at the same time. And you decided to repurpose your WEM columns, seeing as someone else had brought some speakers for the audience. Yeah, we used the WEMPA as side fills, so we set them up either side of the stage and created a wall of sound, basically, for the benefit of the band. Nobody had monitor systems in those days, and if we hadn't taken the WEM system with us, I'm not sure. Yeah, I guess, I, I, I really don't know, I didn't ask the question what they'd done on previous tours, uh, but it worked out well for us that we had that WEM system. 
It, it's interesting because it, it, you know who, who knows when that concept was first put forwards, but you know it seems it seems like it was quite an unusual concept to have monitoring anyway. Yeah, it didn't take long. I mean, by I think you know seventy one, seventy two. I think Dave Martin was making wedge monitors. Things moved very quickly in those days. So something that wasn't the case one month, next case, oh yeah, everyone's got monitors. You know, it, people would copy everybody else in, in terms of. Uh, I remember, it sounds stupid, but I remember the first time I saw somebody using gaffer tape to, you know, take down cables on stage. Made a very neat job of it too. Dave Robinson, his name was, who became um, Stiff Records. He he was one of the two partners of uh, Stiff Records eventually. But, uh, yeah, he was the first person I saw using. I think he worked for Rory Gallagher, and there was like three bands on the on the bill that night, and he he was the guy who'd been to America, and so one minute nobody used gaffer tape, and a year later everybody was using it. So, so you're out there as part of this humongous Led Zeppelin crew of three, was it? Yes, uh, Henry Smith and Sandy uh, McGregor. I always have to think about his surname, uh, Sandy McGregor who was not Scottish, or certainly didn't sound it. He was a Cockney. But, uh, yeah, there, they were, before I joined, there was only two crews, so, you know, they were finding it a bit stressful having to run a PA as well as look after the band, so that's why I was hired. You, you became the first dedicated... But, you know, the way I describe it is they were doing an arena tour, but doing it like a, a small band doing a club tour in Europe. The industry grew up after that, um, but by that time I'd stopped touring. Uh, I was 21 years old and had already decided that that's not what I was going to do for the rest of my life. So on your uh, 30-day stint, there's three of you. Were you driving the gear around yourselves? or Yes, yeah. We had a what they call a 20-foot truck, which... Uh, was legal to drive on a car license and uh, I don't know if we had work permits I don't think we probably did but uh, yeah we had a series of rental trucks um, some of sometimes we had to leave them behind at airports when the distances were too great we would fly everything excess baggage on a succession of flights from A to B uh, and literally abandon the truck on the tarmac and just tell somebody to... <laughs> the keys uh, are in the ignition. Return it. The keys are <laughs> in the ignition. Get it back to Hertz, thank you. Uh, or U-Haul or whoever it was. Yeah, so it was it was an exciting month, but it, it did nearly kill me. And it took me a little while to recover from. But the money was right. <laughs> well, that's something. And meanwhile, and meanwhile, I had two transit vans out on hire with the soft machine. So... It was the first time I'd been hired by anyone for not driving a van or not actually <laughs> driving my own van. Uh, Excellent. So, so you, you, you finished your stints and you were like, that was quite hard going. Well, I, I mean, I think I was suffering from traumatic stress disorder, having spent a month with very little sleep. And But as I say, I, I mean, you know, I survived it. We had a couple of very near misses with, on the road with the, with the trucks. So uh, I'm glad to be alive, you know, really, from that. You know. 
They were quite serious near misses. One was in a blizzard uh, going from uh, Portland to Denver, which is a 1,200-mile drive, and we had two days to do it in, or two nights, I should say, with a day in between. Yeah, they were going over the Rocky Mountains in a, in a blizzard and nearly went over the side. We did a, literally a 360-degree spin uh, and uh, because the road, you know, a lot of snow had fallen and the road had frozen and uh, Sandy, who was driving, lost it but regained it after it had gone round 360 degrees. But... Uh, we were literally looking over the edge of the mountain at one point, which was a bit wow. scary. Oh, so yes, it was like that. That's maybe not, maybe not for you then. That 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 particular job in the end. Well, it was just the exhaustion of it, and I thought if this is what what it's like, you know, with a, you know, at the top of the the game, you know, the biggest band in the world kind of thing. You know, it was before there were any tour buses and backstage catering. We literally used to have to go out, you know, we'd arrive at a venue, set everything up, and then someone would go and have to find food. Um, and, you know, occasionally we'd get back to the hotel. That You know, we had rooms in the, every hotel. They weren't skimping on that. We just didn't have much time to sleep in them. So we'd go back to the hotel, have a shower, maybe a few hours sleep if there was time. Uh, before showtime, no Gosh. sound checks. <laughs> wasn't any point really. It was like it's either loud enough or it wasn't. Yeah. Did they just walk on stage and you're like, right, I've I've got thirty seconds to try and make the vocal heard over this lot? Um, yeah, I, I, I would do mic checks. I do what you call line checks these days. You know, make sure everything was working. Um, but uh, yeah. Uh, there, there was not a lot of choice in terms of you know, turning things up or down. The one, the one microphone that I did regulate manually because I didn't have a compressor. I didn't know what a compressor was, and they weren't readily available. So um, I, I used to regulate the input trim on the Audio Master on on Robert Plant's uh, vocal because he would tend to override and distort. Uh, the input when he was screaming into it so I just you know turned the input trim down and it's like being a mechanic uh, sort of manual compressor <laughs> or, lim- or limiter um, all, all from the side of the stage as well I, I love I love the idea that it's well mostly there, there, there were some some of the sound companies had snakes um, build and cable that uh uh, would run out to a point in the audience, and that was great. Unfortunately, most of them didn't. Uh, so then I'd have to go out into the audience while the show was going on just to hear how it sounded, just to see if there were any any serious imbalance. But actually, I mean, by my memory, uh, it sounded great most of the time, um, and I think that had everything to do with the band and not so much necessarily to do with either me or the PA system, but uh, everyone was doing their best. The audiences, audience loved it, so never had a complaint. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, everyone still talks about those gigs, so you know there must have, must yeah. be something going right. Yeah, they were quite loud, and, um, and most of the time they were loud. I think there was only one gig where it, it, we had a, a bad system that 
you know, was a bit, if, I think, lots of bad cables. And they had problems before the show just making everything work. And then during, yeah, it was a bit iffy during the show. I think things didn't go particularly well. And um, we got given, the three of us got called before the beak, as it were, with um, the manager and told off in no uncertain terms, um, even though nothing was our fault. But, you know, you just suck it up and carry on to the next one. So you, you returned alive from the US, got back to London, and then... Uh, is that when you started working with High Watt? Yeah, pretty soon afterwards. Um, for, I can't remember why I happened to be going to High Watt, but anyway, I was invited to take over from um, somebody else the job of looking after their demo systems and you know, their demo equipment. And it was a bit like being in artist relations, but going around to rehearsal rooms, um, so that people could try out the high watt amps and PA system. They were trying to get into the PA business, but it was really going about it the wrong way um, in that they were using their tube amp technology from building guitar amps and trying to build PA systems on the same basis. So power amps that look more like guitar amps and speakers covered in Rexine, the same sort of material as the high watt guitar speakers. They, they, they actually worked quite well. It was heavy. You know, the amps in particular were very heavy. Everything was built well. And I used that PA system for the implosion concerts at the Roundhouse every Sunday for several months uh, during 1970. And that gave me more experience of working with lots of different types of band. Um, but it taught me more about the inadequacy of PA systems than uh, anything else. And so when a friend of mine suggested we start a, a business building PA systems, um, I jumped at it. He designed a... It all started with a bass bin. Uh, he designed a bass bin, and I thought, well... Okay, that's a start. Now we, all we have to do is, is add some horns and get some amps from somewhere. And uh, yeah, my ambition, fleetingly, uh, was to own the best PA system in the world so that I could <laughs> work with all the best people. Naive, perhaps, but yeah, anything was possible in those days. And it could but, have been. Um, it could have been everything. Yeah. As you say, it, it was. We, it was a brave new world then. So, and we had. We did build our own. Uh, that was with a, a company called RSD, uh, which stood originally for Rotary Speaker Developments. And his plan A was to build some sort of Super Leslie, but that never actually happened. We got involved in PA straight away. So then, uh, I believe, did you, did you then go and hear Dave Martin's system? Well, I heard, well, yeah, I mean... I went to, uh, I, th I think I might have been doing the sound at the same venue, I can't remember, but I was at a Hawkwind gig in London somewhere and heard the Martin system for the first time and was absolutely blown away by it. Um, and uh, the bass bins were you know, real bass machines. They, 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 you felt the bass in your stomach and you never did with the RSD system. Uh, the RSD system was... Uh, good for polite music, but not for rock and roll. So uh, 
having our own system, you know, gave us exposure. We did, you know, work with all sorts of people, Mott the Hoople and uh, the Kinks and various British bands. The second second iteration of of that came later uh, with Soundcraft, where once again we had a, a, a touring system which gave us lots of fun experience and useful experience too, finding out what, what worked and what could be better, particularly with mixers, of course. So it's RSD, I believe, is that when when uh, you met Graham Blythe? Correct, yeah. Uh, Graham, Paul and I, Paul Dobson and I, had started RSD, and Graham came along after a few months with a mixer. He'd been introduced to us by HH Electronics. He'd gone to see them with his mixer. He had been working with Bill Kelsey, who, whose mixer designs were used with Dave Martin's speakers as the favoured replacement for the WEM systems. So they were the, really the first bin and horn systems available in the UK commercially. Graham was, was and is a, a brilliant uh, electronics engineer and had apprenticed with Bill Kelsey but had kind of overtaken him. They had some big technical argument which Graham uh, resolved by leaving the company and designing his own mixer <laughs> and then had to find somebody to uh, help him commercially exploit it. So our solution was to have him join us as a third partner uh, and that lasted for about I don't know, a year or so before Graham and I split from my original partner to, to form Soundcraft. That was September 73 by then. So, uh, so yeah, RSD lasted about a year and a half before we split from it. And then it, you know, it, Paul carried on and eventually went into the mixer business too, rebranding as Studio Master. Ah. He did that a few years later. And I believe when, when you split, you managed to get the essentially the seed capital for your next venture because Paul wanted to buy you out. Yes, he, he, uh, he, we, we suggested that we had to liquidate the company and he said, oh, you can't do that, uh, I'll buy you out. So how much do you want? And we hadn't talked about it, so I just said, given that the company was insolvent, I said £2,000 and Graham said each and he said done. <laughs> uh, so um, that was a very simple negotiation. So with £4,000, uh, that was our seed capital for, for, for Soundcraft. Yeah. It, it's lucky Graham said each at the end of that really, isn't it? Well, quite, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the first thing we did, because we didn't have any business premises, we just had some borrowed bench space uh, that Graham used. Uh, what we needed was mobility and the ability to move mixers around. So we bought two second-hand Volvo estate cars for cash with, um, I think they were about a grand each or something. And uh, So that was half the working capital uh, gone. <laughs> but, you know, that was at a stage where we, neither of us had any credit. So, uh, Brilliant. Yeah, that was, the, that was the beginning of it. Wow. Uh, and so you, you set up building the first mixer to Graham's design... Um, yeah, Graham, it was a modular system. Um, it was called the Series 4 by then because, we, you know, he'd uh, probably built a dozen mixers but had about uh, four different design 
changes, significant ones. So the the mixer design that we took to Soundcraft was the Series 4, or the Mark IV, sorry, modular mixer. And the first one that we built was the biggest one that we ever did, I think, which was a 48 channel, I think, for Sergio Mendes in Brazil, 77. Wow. Um, uh, He was... Brazilian, as the name suggests, but um, US-based. And um, they were touring in Europe, and we delivered the mixer to the talk of the town uh, in central London, I clearly remember. Wow. So uh, that that was probably the most advanced live console on the planet at that point in time, with parametric EQ, which Graham was very proud of. Wow. Um, but then what really grew the company was, um, you know, we could build one of those a month because Graham was, you know, putting them, the, the way he had the bench space was uh, an electronics company out in Essex and, and they would do sub-assembly work for him, PCB assembly, and then he'd build the build the mixer up himself. But, you know, limited, limited capacity, so uh, we needed our own space and one of the um, people I went to see early on was the Fender Soundhouse which had just opened in Tottenham Court Road which was a big music store the like of which the country had never seen it's where Paper Chase is today and um, we had a I had a mixer I showed it to uh, Ivor Arbiter and the, the shop staff and they got quite interested in it but Ivor said well why don't you put one in the shop and, uh, you know, we'll sell from it. But we won't buy it from you, we'll just sell from it and buy the mixers as we get orders for them. Uh, it was very new territory, so they weren't really sure if these things were going to catch on. So I learned in the process, you know, he said, where do you operate from? He said, well, we don't really operate from anywhere at the moment. Uh, cut a long story short, um, they offered a space on the top floor of the building. And uh, so we uh, started building mixers there. But what we needed was something that we could build quantities of. And that uh, we designed a 16-channel stereo mixer built into a flight case, which we could sell for a £1,000. And that's really what gave the, com- the, the company legs. Uh, we had something we could sell as many as we could make, both in the UK. That's a very reasonable price. Well, it was a reasonable price at the time. I mean, the fact that you can buy a 16-channel stereo mixer for less than that today um, makes it sound expensive. But, uh, yeah, it was probably the equivalent of £10,000 today or maybe more. But um, it was affordable. People were getting paid you know, reasonably well for gigs. So, um, you know, the economics actually worked. And people realised they needed one, mm. uh, particularly with the you know, emerging bigger PA systems. People wanted to not just have the vocals in the PA, they wanted everything in the PA. Mm. The bigger the venues, the more that was the case. In fact, there was a point in time where I felt that the Martin systems were going into sort of pub gigs and they, they were really too powerful for pub gigs. There was a sort of fashion for miking everything up, even if you're playing to a couple hundred people, which is frankly not a great idea, I don't think. One anecdote that I forgot to include, 
that first job that I had at CAPS Research, the factory next door uh, was a company called Vitavox. Have you ever heard of Vitavox? Oh, yes, yes. Well, I didn't know who Vitavox were, and for the entire time that I was there, I never bothered to find out. But when we started building the uh, RSDPA systems, we uh, copied what Dave Martin was doing and buying the horns and compression drivers from Vitavox. Oh, wow. Uh, for for a short time. They, they weren't actually... They were too good for the application. They were designed for cinema sound which you know had been processed and so it was not too dynamic mm. and the and the compression drivers survived well in a cinema environment but in rock and roll they didn't the aluminium uh, diaphragms shattered regularly uh. so we ended up using altec and ultimately jbl horns and compression drivers i uh, picked but, some vitavox uh, diaphragms out of you know, it cleans out the uh, the magnets from from shattered diaphragms on Vitavox before. I I clearly remember. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it was, it was funny that it, you know, just a weird coincidence in life that they were the factory right next door to Caps, and I never <laughs> knew what they did. Uh, you know, hadn't made any connection that would be relevant. And it was just sort of like going back in time when I went to visit Vitavox eventually. So it, it always amazed me. It feels like there were only 10 people in the music industry ever. <laughs> so it seems such a small, you know, everything is interlinked somehow. Oh, very much. Um, I mean, it's in the late sixties. All the bands knew each other, but because uh, there weren't that many of them, and anyone who could actually play usually got signed because the you know, not that many people could play. Um, so um, yeah, it's uh, extraordinary times back then, and you know, Gosh. amazing to have been in the right place at the right time to be part of it. I'd like to thank Phil for taking the time to discuss his early experiences in live sound. Please join me in the next episode, where I'll be speaking to Phil about Soundcraft, the Old Grey Whistle Test, and Focusrite. A History of Live Sound is presented by me, Chris Snow, executive producer at Spare Women, and is a bandwidth production. <laughs>